Hey everyone, Corey here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Flirting with Models. If you're enjoying the show, I'd greatly appreciate it if you'd take a moment to rate, review, and most importantly, share with a friend. Word of mouth is how this podcast grows. And if you'd like to learn more about Newfound's platform of return-stacked mutual funds, ETFs, and model portfolios, head over to returnstacked.com. Now on with the show. All right, three, two, one. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Corey Hofstein and this is Flirting with Models, the podcast that pulls back the curtain to discover the human factor behind the quantitative strategy. Corey Hofstein is the co-founder and chief investment officer of Newfound Research. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Newfound Research's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Newfound Research. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Newfound Research may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. For more information, visit thinknewfound.com. This season is sponsored by Simplify ETFs. Simplify seeks to help you modernize your portfolio with its innovative set of options-based strategies. Full disclosure, prior to Simplify sponsoring the season, we had incorporated some of Simplify's ETFs into our ETF model mandates here at Newfound. If you're interested in reading a brief case study about why and how, visit simplify.us slash flirtingwithmodels. And stick around after the episode for an ongoing conversation about markets and convexity with the convexity maven himself, Simplify's own Harley Bassman. In this episode, I chat with David Fauchier of Nickel Digital Asset Management. At Nickel, David manages the Factors Fund, a multi-strategy, multi-manager fund for cryptocurrencies. We leave the philosophical discussions about crypto aside to dive into the features of this universe that make it rife with opportunity. What struck me most about the conversation was not just how much crypto markets have evolved in the past several years, but how fragmented they still remain. Different exchange rules, regulatory regimes, margining rules, derivative contract definitions, and even order book models represent both risk and opportunity. And in exploring these ideas, David helps me better understand why traditional high-frequency funds like Citadel, Jump, or Jane Street don't just simply come in and eat everyone's lunch. In the latter part of the conversation, we pivot to David's role as a manager of managers and explore issues such as exchange and custody risk, due diligence, and the types of questions an allocator should be asking. Finally, David leaves us with a teaser about new opportunities emerging in the DeFi space, but we'll have to save that for another conversation. Please enjoy my conversation with David Fauchier. David, welcome to the show. Really excited to have you here today. Thanks a lot. It should be fun. This one I'm really excited about in particular because in past seasons, I have done nothing in the crypto space. I've probably been a little too crypto averse. And I will say that conversations with you and folks like you have been really enlightening about some exciting stuff that's going on in this space and just different ways of thinking about the investing world. So I think the audience is going to get a lot out of this one. I hope the response isn't too vitriolic. Well, let's get started with just your background. How did you even end up in the crypto space? Sure. So like a lot of people in this space, a long series of coincidences is probably the shortest answer. I did a master's in history at college, did a lot of economic history there, sort of became financially literate sometime between the GFC and the European debt crisis. I studied in Edinburgh and French. So that was kind of a big moment kind of as a young adult. And that was sort of my introduction to that. And then around the same time, somebody sent me the Bitcoin white paper and I was already fairly into tech at the time. And so it sort of kicked off and just found the idea hugely interesting. And it ended up kind of the more I dug into it, the more elegant it was, at least mathematically, in terms of the game theory of it, et cetera. And that's really what got me kind of hooked into the space. And then secondarily was, I thought the idea of a kind of non-sovereign private digital money, which was a better asset, was interesting and totally wacky, crazy, insane, and almost certain not to work. But it was just really interesting to watch. That's sort of how I got in. 
And then I started meeting a bunch of the managers in the space. There were not many of them back in 2014, 15, 16. Things really started to kick off in 17. And around the middle of that year, I was offered the opportunity to build up some kind of a crypto fund. And my kind of answer to that was, we should definitely do a fund of funds. Let's figure out if that's actually a good idea, but it seems to be. And just build a portfolio of these incredible managers that are starting to come out doing pretty interesting, niche highly technical things. And yeah, we started setting up the fund of funds. By summer of 2018, it was really obvious to me that this was the middle of the bear market and the kind of alpha side of things, that the trading side was definitely the most interesting. We had, by summer of 2018, it sort of marked this interesting point for me where you could go and see one of the big lending desks and you could borrow or short in size for less than 10% annualized. And at the same time, you had the first large derivatives exchange in the space that had like deep liquid markets. And so it meant that you could go and do all of the interesting kind of market neutral stuff from the traditional space, but in crypto and no one else was doing it. And it just felt quite obvious to us that on a risk adjusted basis, this was like really interesting, the place to be, and nobody was really focused on it. So we set that up, hired a team, raised some money, launched the fund. We ended up winding the fund down for reasons I, I think we'll get into tangentially around the summer of 2020, mostly for lack of funds. I did not know that we were coming into a bull market that would probably help on the asset raising side. But at the time, my view was kind of that we're in the middle of a global pandemic and who's going to invest in a crypto fund of funds that's been in a two-year kind of crypto winter. And around the same time, very luckily got a call from an asset manager in London called Nickel, who I knew very well because we had actually seeded their first fund out of our fund. And I really liked and respected the partners. And they called me up and sort of outlined exactly what I wanted to evolve Cambriel, my previous firm, into and said, do you think it's a good idea? And if so, do you want to come and help us run it? And so just at the right time, started a conversation with them and joined them in November to set this up. We launched in December. We ran internal money for two months, just kind of testing the pipes and sort of officially launched in February. Well, so before we dive into what Nickel is, because I do want to use that to sort of maybe level set the rest of the conversation and diving into these different strategies in the crypto space. But I do know after your experience in running a fund of fund structure, you now have the view that fund of funds may not actually be appropriate for this space. And I wanted to know why you think that's the case. I do. I know I mentioned something similarly, kind of along those lines to you, and maybe to tweak what I said a little bit. I think that there are some great fund of funds in the crypto space. I think they make for fantastic access products. I think they make sense if you want to make one crypto bet and just give your money to a manager and say, I don't know anything about the space. You go figure it out for me. I think that funds of funds are suboptimal as a way of managing money in a kind of multi-manager way in the market neutral trading kind of alpha side of things. Because we'll get into this, but this market is changing so noticeably quarter on quarter on quarter, like really, really at a pace that you just don't see elsewhere. And all of the managers are super new. So you want to be nimble with your capital. You want to monitor things as closely as possible. And that means not sort of writing a check to a manager, subscribing into a fund and checking in with them once a month to see how things are going and have to take everything that they say on faith, essentially. What you want to be able to do is just monitor trade by trade, every single thing that's happening in your entire book in real time and be able to step in and intervene if that happens. And so that takes you more towards a model that looks like a multi-manager platform, like a Millennium, a Verition, a Booth Bay from the traditional space, but applied to crypto. So I think that tees up maybe Nickel Digital nicely for you to explain, okay, what does the Nickel Digital platform actually look like and, and how is that set up? So Nickel is a kind of large, at least for crypto, institutional grade asset manager in the crypto space based in London. We're a team of about 20 people. It's got three products. The first one is their flagship arbitrage fund that runs a bunch of arbitrage strategies that's managed internally. The second is a Bitcoin tracker product, which tracks the price of Bitcoin, which is really just kind of a fidelity, custodied, daily liquidity type Bitcoin tracker, super simple. The third is the factors fund, which is the one I came in to run. And that's the multi-manager platform. And what it really does is kind of copy pastes 
all of the trading infrastructure and the operational infrastructure that they built for their arbitrage fund and makes that available as a multi-manager platform for external managers. Because one of the things I think people don't realize until they get into the space is that all of your EMS, so execution management, portfolio management, exchange connectivity, et cetera, does not really exist in this space. You have to build everything from scratch. And that's just a really big load. And for that reason and others, like managers sometimes want to just plug into a platform like ours and just focus on the trading and have us focus on raising the assets, doing execution, taking care of the operations, the middle office, the back office, everything. So when we start talking about the different managers on this platform, and I know you guys have a quantitative and systematic bent, what does that landscape look like? Does it mirror the traditional quant landscape in more developed markets, or are there strategies that are totally differentiated and new in the crypto space? There are, but mainly the bulk of it is a really nice, clean copy-paste. The way I kind of look at or break out the landscape in the crypto world, at least, is you have the structural arbitrage strategies, and these are where there's a structural reason why a spread is going to close. So a really simple structural arb is a basis trade. So typically your futures traded a contango, which is to say a premium to spot. I'm going to guess your listener base is pretty quanty. Okay, great. Oh, yeah. Good. So yeah, a basis trade. If you can hold that contract through to expiry, if the contract doesn't blow up, if the counterparty doesn't blow up, there's a structural reason why you're going to capture that that spread. And so this kind of first bucket is your structural ARB strategies. It started out in spot. So buy Bitcoin for dollars on this exchange and sell it on another exchange at a premium. Move the dollars back, rinse and repeat. Then you've got triangular ARB strategies. So buy Bitcoin dollar, sell Bitcoin euro, convert euro to dollar and rinse and repeat. But we've had, especially in the past three years, really a booming derivatives market that's been growing. And that really started with Delta Ones. And so there's been a range of Delta One to spot ARBs and Delta Ones against each other, futures against perpetuals, futures listed on different exchanges on the same pair, and the same with perpetuals and crossing all of those things together, and more recently introducing options into the mix. So you've got your kind of like spot arbitrage, your scalping, your basis trades, your funding rate trades on normal contracts, inverse contracts on quantos. There's just a lot of different contracts in the space trading on lots of different exchanges. And the prices dislocate very easily. And that presents opportunities. The second bucket is sort of your predictive strategies. So these are the ones where basically you look at the past to predict the future. You hope to be right 60% of the time and make more money when you're right than when you're wrong. So this is your like trend following, your momentum, your startup, your relative value, these kinds of strategies. And then kind of the third bucket is liquidity provision. And really that's market making, which sits somewhere in between the two. It's arbitrage, but it's also stochastic in nature. So yeah, I sometimes break that out. But I think all of these kind of strategies I've described will sound very familiar to someone in the traditional space. And they are kind of copy pasted over in concept, but the implementation is very different. And then to your point on totally different strategies, That's really something we've seen in the DeFi space, so decentralized finance, which is basically there's a quote-unquote cryptocurrency called Ethereum, which is not really a currency. It's more like a giant global decentralized computer that people can run stuff on. And people have rebuilt financial primitives on that. So stable coins, tokens which exist on Ethereum, which are pegged to the value of a dollar. That's handy. Lending, borrowing, order book markets, automated market makers, so the ability to exchange assets. And it's this sort of budding ecosystem that's being built in parallel, which is really its own beast. We can get into it, but it gets pretty complex, I think, to explain in a few minutes. Well, I think that leans nicely into something I wanted to go into next, which is what would be very different to someone coming from a traditional marketplace. And I think You touched on it there, but how rapidly market structure is ultimately changing and these opportunities are changing and it has really rapidly evolved over the last several years. How does that change and impact strategy half-life when you're operating in this space? Yeah. So I think it's probably worth us talking about kind of what market structure looks like today. And based off of that, I think it kind of answers your question and it sort of leads very nicely to talking about what kinds of 
strategies make sense. Like everybody knows crypto trades mostly on technicals and narrative. There's a large retail involvement. Not many institutions, not many professional traders or trading firms. Citadel is, to my knowledge, not trading, for example, the crypto markets. And that brings with it volatility, fragmentation, a lot of kind of hiding and behavioral biases that have been obbed away in traditional markets. All of that's kind of present. And that's kind of your surface level and everyone knows this. I think the next layer deep is really to realize quite how fragmented that liquidity is. I am not aware of any other market in the world now or historically, and someone please correct me if I'm wrong here, but that presents a greater breadth of arbitrage opportunities or depth, not in terms of the capacity, but just how many different ways there are to arb specific markets or instruments. You have hundreds of exchanges existing today, which are listing related products. So in equities, you have Apple is listed in one place. You can go and trade it on the New York Stock Exchange against dollars, and that's it. In crypto, assets trade many to many. So you can buy Bitcoin against the dollar, but also against the euro, the pound, the Polish zloty, the Indian rupee, and you can do the same for Ethereum. But you can also trade Ethereum against Bitcoin directly. And all of these other altcoins are paired to USD, as well as to Bitcoin, as well as to Ethereum. So you have this many-to-many model in terms of the pairs, and you have thousands of cryptocurrencies. They're not all liquid. But if you take the top 20, top 50, and then figure out all the different trading permutations between them, the numbers get really big. And then all of those trading pairs and that liquidity is fragmented across all of these exchanges. Each of those has their own operational frictions, the simplest being some exchanges don't allow Americans to trade, and other exchanges allow Americans but don't allow Koreans. So like the operational side is real. Then there's the counterparty risks, which differ between exchanges. You have different buckets of exchanges. You've got the highly regulated American ones. You've got the lightly regulated slash semi-regulated exchanges that have sort of picked their jurisdictions. So running a derivatives exchange in Singapore is less onerous than London, for example. And so you might choose to locate yourself there or Malta versus New York to pick an extreme. And then you've got the unregulated exchanges. And then Between all of these, you have different pools of capital that have access to them and that have different preferences as to which ones they're going to trade on. There's also kind of your, a lot of the Asian exchanges are locked in their own world. Chinese exchanges is kind of a whole other story. But kind of moving on from that, what I've just described is basically just the spot market. But we have a huge derivatives market, especially on the Delta One side. And each of these exchanges, there's probably... There's like five to seven main Delta One exchanges in crypto. But each of those, these contracts need an index price. And the index that is calculated is actually different on each of these exchanges. So the way in which they're calculating the price of, say, Bitcoin at a point in time differs between exchange A, B, C, D, and E. That sort of leaves a lot of room for dislocations. Then you have different structures of the contracts themselves. So The largest derivatives exchange till recently was called BitMEX, and they listed inverse perpetuals only. So you margined in Bitcoin and got US dollar Bitcoin exposure, or you margined in Bitcoin and got ETH USD exposure. So that's a quanto. And that kind of inverse product has interesting microstructure characteristics and features, because especially if you think about it on the way down, if you have a collapse in price, the value of your contract is going to drop. And at the same time, the value of the collateral you've placed against it is also going to drop. So you have this kind of super linear relationship where you can get these huge crashes because you need to suddenly be putting more collateral on than if you were margining with something stable like a dollar. And so this kind of introduces a bunch of ways of trading around that, which is kind of interesting. And to your point around how fast these markets move, that exchange did not perform well during March, pissed off a lot of traders, essentially. And then the founders were indicted for breaching the Bank Secrecy Act and AML rules in September. And one of them was arrested and released on bail. The other two are basically on the run. I mean, it's really spicy stuff. But a lot of people basically said, we're going to stop trading now. They've never been hacked. They've never lost money. But people are understandably hesitant to trade there, as they probably should be. And so they've moved to other exchanges, but those other exchanges 
their dominant products are USDT margined. USDT is the dominant stablecoin. And just that move of volume and open interest from an inverse to a dollar-backed to a cash-margined future and perpetual has actually like noticeably shifted market structure. And the way in which Bitcoin crashes is actually different. And then you've got on the perpetual side, they've each got different funding rates, but the funding rates crystallize every hour or every eight hours or every 24 hours. It depends. The way in which they're calculated differs. Sometimes the way in which they're calculated is actually not the same exactly as how it's spec'd in the contract, which means that it's exploitable because they're being priced wrong. Sometimes even on a cash margin, like the base pair will be actual dollars or a stable coin or a different stable coin or another stable coin. So in so many kind of different ways, you have all of these fractures in liquidity. So you have this exploding number of pairs to trade. You have this exploding number of derivative contracts and new ones are coming out. You have all these different exchanges, which I think one of the most interesting things you said to me in a past conversation was even talking about the fragmentation among exchanges in terms of how their order books even work, which I, yeah. I found very fascinating. I mean, is all this fragmentation ultimately an opportunity or is it really just a risk from the perspective of trying to manage a fund? It's an opportunity if you make money off it. It's a risk if you, if you lose money because of it. I mean, it's both, I think. It's an opportunity in the sense that it's just incredibly easy for the prices of all of these related assets to dislocate. It's also an opportunity in that like, there are real returns to hard work if you are willing to kind of put in the hours to get intimate, like really deeply intimate with exactly how these matching engines work and the nuances between the different order types and how those are handled. The example you just mentioned on the order books, take Binance and Deribit are two different exchanges with pretty different matching engines and different order types. But if you get really intimate with that, when you post an order, is it first in, first out or not when you move into the order book? And if it's first in, first out, then you want to be posting your orders as soon as possible. And if you want to change your order or take it out and then put it back in, then you're going to go to the back of the queue, which sucks. For example, for a market maker, this is an important consideration for them because they might be laying orders into the order book a couple bids deep, waiting to get hit and make you know 50 bips just like that because someone put through a fat finger trade. But if you're constantly updating that quote, then you're moving to the back of the queue every time. But maybe, just maybe, on Deribit, yes, it's FIFO, but actually once you've posted an order, you can edit one of the parameters or all of the parameters. So maybe you could quote for one contract or a tenth of a contract and get into that queue. And then once you're in the queue, you can actually edit the volume. So you could move it from a tenth of a contract to 10 contracts at the drop of a hat without losing your place in the queue. And maybe that's not true on Binance. And maybe that opens up kind of an opportunity to arb between the two. So what I mean when I'm talking about getting intimate, I really, really mean intimate, like beyond the contract specification that's provided to you, actually trading these markets day in, day out, running experiments to figure out exactly how these order types work and trying to figure out how the matching engine itself works. And the same can kind of be applied to where these exchanges sit and how they're structured at a networking level. Because all of these are, to my knowledge, all crypto exchanges sit on Amazon Web Services. So you can't really co-locate with them. And they won't tell you exactly where they are. They'll tell you the availability zone in the region. But ideally, you want to be in, sitting in the box next to the matching engine. But there's not really any way for you to figure out what that is. There's no one you can ask. But there are ways where you could run kind of interesting triangulations to try and figure out how close am I? And what if I move over here or over here or over here? Can I find my way closer to this box? So there's a lot, I think, that you can do because there's so much fragmentation. There's just loads of little opportunities all over the place that you can just pick up on. And the risk side of things, yeah, it introduces risk. but I don't say it in jest, like the flip side of risk is that it's a source of opportunity. The big one, I think, is the margining systems, which vary quite a lot between exchanges. So some exchanges don't have portfolio margin. It's contract by contract, which can make things pretty inefficient. And 
it can affect kind of how you trade and how you quote, for example, as a market maker. Some of them do have portfolio margining. And so the way in which you'll trade across all of these needs to be different to take that into account. That makes things harder. And by being harder, it means that there's more edge. There's sort of this strong correlation between hard work and edge everywhere, um, which is definitely true in the crypto space. And then you've got like, if you need to move collateral between two exchanges, at some point, probably you're going to need to make an on-chain transfer. So actually like moving Ethereum on the Ethereum blockchain from one exchange account to a different exchange account. But each exchange is going to handle that differently. It's going to do it in different timeframes and it's possible that they're going to reject it. So if Ethereum fees spike really, really high for some reason, and that's typically during periods of high dislocation, either turmoil or just a really big bull run and just a rip higher. If you want to move at that point, your collateral move might actually just fail trading on Binance, for example. And you need to be able to take that into account in your trading. And because you and everyone else is suffering from the same thing, it's going to cause a dislocation with a different exchange. So in a perfect world, it would be easy to build robust bridges between all of these different liquidity pools, but that's really hard. It would make fragmentation less of a feature and an opportunity, but building them is just operationally a lot of grinding work and making them robust is really hard as well. So if there's a free lunch in crypto, it's this just the hard work involved in getting intimate with these contracts and these exchanges and building those bridges. How often are those contract specs or margin rules or even order book matching engine algorithms changing? And how rapidly are you aware that they're changing? So matching engines are quite opaque. So you don't really know. You wouldn't necessarily know if they moved. About two Fridays ago, one of the top exchanges went down for six hours. Like this stuff just happens in this space. And you need to build your system so that they're robust to these kinds of failures. But the entire thing went down, including the marketing website. Like Huobi.com and Huobi's exchange all went down because they were sitting in one region in, I think it was in AWS Tokyo. And on a Friday night, they just had an outage. That may change in the future. I suspect that they're probably going to spread out over different, at least availability zones. If they do, that might have implications on latency, for example, or some other feature. So you don't necessarily know, but the stuff you do know about is new contracts, new indices, or changes to how the contracts or the indices work happens quite a lot. I don't know, every week, maybe. Like I know, for example, if you're market making, like the market maker programs will change every couple of months. So they'll be making adjustments to quoting requirements or volume requirements. And across all the different exchanges that you trade across, that means that you're going to have to put up with differences on quoting requirements, but also on how many API calls can I make per minute? And what's the limit on 10 minutes? And do I need to adjust my throttling algorithm? Because I always want to reserve like 100 calls, basically, where if shit hits the fan, I need to get out quickly. I've always got that buffer of 100 calls that I can pull in an emergency just to get out of my positions and pull my quotes. So these things change all the time. It's a lot of work. So why don't traditional firms like a Citadel or a Jane Street or a Jump, who we would expect to excel in a market like this, who are experts at building infrastructure, low latency infrastructure, understanding market models and market algorithms, dealing with arbitrage, why don't they just come into this space and clean up? Yeah, they should, right? Conceptually, it's a straight copy paste. So they absolutely should. And this is a question I worried about a lot three years ago and that I've been asked all the time for the past three years. Observably, the crypto markets have gotten much more efficient, but the big players aren't playing in size. And when they are, they are on very specific exchanges quoting very specific contracts. So it's not really hindered the ability of sort of call them crypto native players to start from scratch. And bear in mind, these guys typically come out of these shops. They're coming from Tower or DRW or Jane Street, Jump, Siskahana. A lot have come out from Optiva. So they know some of the tricks at least. What they don't have is the resources that these big firms have. But they're typically hungry and smart and entrepreneurial and they have three years head start. So conceptually, yeah, sure, everybody should be in this space. In practice, firstly, the dollar pool of profits that's available to you is really small for a for Citadel. I mean, this is a joke. It's a crumb. And the possible legal or regulatory exposure from participating in the space is totally outsized 
to the amount of dollars you could make. I mean, there's a couple of guys at every quant firm that are dabbling in this over the weekend and maybe running some in-house experiments, but that doesn't mean they're just pivoting the entire firm to go and figure this out. And when they do, what's interesting is it's actually far harder to transpose these strategies into crypto than you would think at first blush. And I think that's really true on the kind of high-frequency trading market-making side of things. I think we discussed an example of if your jump, well, I guess there's two ways to make money in this space. You can be better at pricing or you can be faster. And if your jump, then your edge is basically to be faster, to my knowledge. And you have hired really expensive colo space in particular spots. And you probably have access through like trunk fiber optics that are in a straight line between X and Y place. And you've hired a bunch of guys that are really good at registry level optimizations to run these computations microseconds faster than the next guy. And maybe you've even got custom hardware in there as well. These guys are really expensive. They're hyper-professionalized and specialized, and they're super good at what they do. And if you take that team and you just say, hey, go be the fastest market maker in crypto, well, the first thing they realize is that there is no exchange to colo into, and it's sitting on AWS. And actually what you want is a guy who is amazing, like an amazing rock star at network optimization on AWS specifically and building extremely like highly available, highly performant systems on AWS. And that's not necessarily the guy coming out of jump because why would it be? And so your environment is completely different. And so hyper-specialization doesn't port over. And so it's harder. It's not so simple as them just flipping a switch and quoting in this market. One of the things that became pretty apparent to me in conversations with you is that alpha opportunities in this space seem to pop up and then very rapidly degrade in many cases. How do you think about trading a market like that? What are the skills that you look for? What do you need? There's kind of two stereotypes that I've seen the successful traders kind of follow. The first is their approach to building systems is around enhancing human traders rather than systematizing everything. And so make the human trader better. So there's a lot of manual oversight. There's some form of manual execution. It's someone on a screen saying, yeah, let's do X trade. But the actual execution of the trade, the optimization of it, how it gets led into the book and executed, et cetera, is systematic. But there's kind of a superhuman sitting behind the screen. Just calculating your PL in real time is hard in this space. So they have a really good grasp of their PL, all of their risk metrics. Moving collateral from one exchange isn't about logging into that exchange and tapping away and figuring out the address that you need to send it to and scanning your 2FA code on your phone and doing all of those manual steps. You've reduced that to an API call. Or even better, it's just automated in the background. So all of this kind of tooling that you can add that just makes the manager's job way easier is one way. And the kinds of traders that you see doing that, that we look for, it's a trader type I kind of call paranoid cowboys. It's not to say that these guys are cowboys in the sense of, you know, take your money and just go screw around with it, which is something I really detest. But cowboys in the sense that they are willing to jump into a new contract and be like 30% of the open interest or the volumes and just trade that super aggressively from day one. And they'll just jump in and trade it. And they'll rely a lot on their human trading skills, but be augmented by systems. And I say paranoid cowboys because the cowboy part alone just gets you into trouble and you'll blow up and basically exit the space very soon. If you're going to go and do this, you also need to be paranoid. You need to be really, really thinking about all of the ways in which this can screw up and blow up and break and just relentlessly kind of build redundancies against that because there's a ton of stuff that can go wrong as you trade and you are in the high frequency world, extremely fragile to those things. So these are the guys we've recently been doing work on a manager. If they have a PL drop, which is unusual for them, like of more than a percent, it's not like his phone just rings. He carries around two phones at all times and they both ring in case one of them doesn't have, and they're with different carriers. And I suspect, I haven't asked him, but I suspect they're also different phones because they'll have different chips in them. And like one of them may have better connectivity in certain areas than the other. And it's not just him, it's him and the CTO, I think who also has trading permissions. So you've got two people having two phones 
where if something screws up, they're just getting the call. That level of paranoia is exactly what we look for. These guys have really thought through like, well, what if a cell tower is down on this particular network? All these crazy things which are bound to happen at some point. They're just paranoid about them. And they spend their lunch times just thinking about, oh, well, like I wonder how we could break the system and then just going and patching them. I think that's how you trade a market like this that's constantly shifting and evolving. It's fast, nimble, and paranoid. On the more kind of quantitative side, it's been one of the most interesting things I've seen very rarely, but I've seen a couple of times, is people that are just really focused on building a model that builds other models. So they have a super sweet backtesting environment. They throw tons of data into it. And they just brute force for features and models and filters and weightings. And they have a system that just automatically pulls models out, changes them, retunes them across hundreds of different models. And it's sort of this giant swarm of models, basically, that's trading. And that means that as the market shifts, because you're looking at so many different features across so many diff different time horizons, you can kind of chuck these models and replace them pretty quickly. And some of the more kind of interesting from a at least what my judgment of that durability is. The most durable, I think, highly quantitative, statistically-minded strategies seem to do something like that. Time will tell, though. We'll see. I want to pivot the conversation a little bit from talking about market structure and types of strategies to talking about actually managing a fund in this space. And one of the things you've alluded to a couple times in this conversation now is that the price of Bitcoin isn't necessarily just the price of Bitcoin. There is a different price potentially in all these different exchanges. And so one of the first questions that comes up for me is even just something as simple as fund accounting. How do you think about determining the fair value of a crypto asset when the price can be so different on these different exchanges or even P&L? I mean, I guess technically the price of Bitcoin at a given point in time is a judgment call rather than a fact, because the price where is the first question because there's so many different places. So you need to have a reference point, which doesn't really exist today. I don't think that this is an issue from a fund accounting perspective, because the differences that we're talking about are measured in basis points. And because most of all, any fund that you would invest into has got their own valuation policy. And in that valuation policy, it specifies this is how the administrator for this fund is being instructed to value assets. And as an investor, you review that or should review that before investing. That is a document that's available to you. You should review it and say, I think it's robust or not robust, or I'm happy or not happy with it. So I don't think it's an issue for investors, but it is an issue if you are market making, for example. And how many exchanges should you ingest pricing data from? And should you weight that? pricing data by the volumes on that exchange, or by the regulatory environment, or who's trading on there, or order book imbalances, or a bunch of other things? And should your price of Bitcoin and dollars be just look at spot markets, or should it also take into account derivatives markets? If so, would you take into account a Bitcoin Tether contract rather than a Bitcoin USD? Or you can sort of go on and on. So I think from a valuation perspective, it's Typically, what we saw when we were doing due diligence on funds is they will either have an independent custodian, and the custodian provides the reference prices for these assets that they snapshot monthly, or they will say, we will take the median price across all of the exchanges that we trade on, and potentially even do like a time-weighted or volume-weighted price for that over a 15, 30-minute snapshot, something like this. What about the management of the assets themselves in terms of exchange and custody risk. It's not something we give a lot of thought to in developed markets, but you've alluded to exchanges getting hacked at different points or thinking about how to actually store cryptocurrency to make sure it's secure. How do you think about managing that risk from a fund level? So this kind of comes back to, I mean, the way we do it, which is different to a fund of funds, is we control all of these assets, they sit inside our exchange accounts. So we can unilaterally close down an account, withdraw assets, move assets, do whatever we want. So we have our own views as to counterparty risk exposure that we enforce effectively 
in our allocation decisions to different managers or steering managers from or towards certain exchanges. The main risk in general in trading strategies in crypto are your counterparty risks, but the risks are diminishing. And I think that people's perception of those risks is somewhat lagging, which is to our advantage. The exchanges themselves are getting safer to trade on. It's not so simple, at least anymore, as saying an exchange gets hacked and all of the Bitcoin just disappears and you lose everything. And that's it. Security practices, especially since 2018, have gotten a lot better. So these exchanges, firstly, the best practices around storing crypto generally have gotten much better. But as these exchanges have gotten bigger, the fluctuations in the kind of daily deposits and withdrawals has shrunk as they get bigger, which is what you'd expect. And that means that they can store a larger and larger and larger portion of their assets in cold storage. So I think Coinbase, which is a big US exchange, just filed their S1. And I think it was in that, I think something like 97% of their assets are held in cold storage. Cold storage is a really, really, really safe way to store crypto assets. And then that leaves your kind of 3% float effectively sitting on top in warm or hot wallets. And if someone's going to succeed in actually hacking you, it's going to be a subset or all of those hot wallets that are really at risk rather than the entire stack of crypto assets being held by the exchange on behalf of clients. So the first thing is like the security has gone up and there are different tranches of assets being stored by the exchange, which have different risk levels. And the high risk level has really, really shrunk. The next is, I guess, at the user level on these exchanges, security practices have gotten better. You can now whitelist your withdrawal addresses. So again, like taking Coinbase as an example, but pretty much any exchange now, you go and you will specify certain addresses that can be withdrawn to. And if you've got a lot of money there, you can get a corporate account. And if you have a corporate account, then like you can have your account manager do a video call with you in order to do that. And they will implement typically a time lock, which means you add an address and you can't withdraw to that address for 48 hours. And there's tons of different ways that you can cancel the adding of an address to a whitelist. You can also whitelist your APIs that you're trading from, two-factor authentications, these time locks. So there's lots of things that were done actually at the user level. The next kind of step down is if things really do go bananas and the worst sort of happens, these exchanges have built up very large insurance funds, which is if something goes wrong, if the other side of your contract is insolvent, then the exchange is going to make you whole out of that insurance fund. And these funds have gotten really big. And some of the big exchange hacks that we've seen in the past couple of years, 50 million gets stolen. The exchange just makes people whole straight out of the insurance fund. They don't bat an eyelid. So it's gotten really sizable now. And then finally, like the large exchanges have huge balance sheets and they absolutely print money in real size. And so Partly, they just have a really big balance sheet that they can use if things go wrong. And partly, it's added incentive kind of not to kill the golden goose because it's sort of worth it for them to go out and borrow or dilute themselves in order to sort of keep the gravy train running in a way. So they are heavily incentivized not to screw the people trading on their platform. So you'd need something that's really, really catastrophic to, you know, blow up a contract with no recourse or for your assets to just disappear. Of the different ways that that could happen, security practices are basically getting better on the hacking side and on the blow up side, insurance funds are getting bigger, the exchanges themselves are getting bigger. And I think, God, March 2020, the volatility levels that we saw in fixed income and equities, crypto is five and 10 times more volatile than either of those two asset classes. And magnify the level of craziness by that. And that's pretty much what crypto markets looked like on and around March the 12th. It was really heavy stuff, but ultimately markets cleared and no exchanges were taken down. And to my knowledge, not even a contract blew up. A lot of crypto traders individually got taken out a lot, but the system as a whole ran. And I don't know if you can say that about many traditional asset classes. Like we got bailed out. And there was no one bailing crypto out. And so I think it's very much testament to the space. And this is not something I would have said in 2018, even 2019. I think the space has gotten a lot more robust and resilient. And part of that is because it's volatile all day long, there are, you can take out 100x leverage, but no one ever does because you'll just get carried out on your back within minutes. 
in an environment like this. So the use of leverage in crypto and the rehypothecation of assets and basically getting too cute on all of this stuff is almost non-existent compared to what we see in, in traditional markets. People just don't get too cute because it adds too much complexity and that just ends up blowing you up. And so I think these markets are, I don't know, Nassim Taleb would probably like them if he didn't hate crypto so much because it's lots of little stresses to the system, but ultimately I think it makes it more resilient. The final thing, which is sort of the holy grail, is off-exchange settlement. So this is the idea that I can deposit assets with my custodian, and my custodian also has accounts with the crypto exchange, and the custodian can make an internal ledger movement from my account to the custodian's account, and I can use those crypto assets, which still sit with the custodian, as my collateral and margin for trading on the exchange. And that means that the assets never actually go to the exchange. They sit safely with the custodian. And sure, you can say that there's counterparty risk with the custodian themselves, but I would take that any day over an exchange. And the custodians themselves are getting more robust, more regulated, and better insured generally. So this is kind of largely in, in progress towards being a solved problem. As you start to scour this space for partners, I want to talk a little bit about the wisdom you've gathered. What are the red flags that you see when you're doing due diligence? One of my favorite kind of red flags is trying to tease out like how wide is the distribution of events that they consider possible in their trading. And a lack of paranoia, I keep coming back to this, is a sure sign of trouble to come because in my mind, the distribution of events in crypto over the past eight years now that I've been following these markets is extraordinarily wide and crazy shit happens. And if you're not ready for it, you know, you're finished. I meet pseudo quant guys that ran a backtest over three years of data on their strategy and have traded it for three or five months and they're absolutely smashing it. And they have no monitoring in place. Like, no, 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 like our strategy doesn't go down. It doesn't lose money. So we don't really need to get woken up in the middle of the night if it's trading and it's lost 50% because that would never happen. We've never lost more than 5%. And you nod and thank them for that time. And three months later, they're gone. Or they blow up, lose 20% and give you a call and say, hey, thanks. What should we have done? And how do you suggest we kind of claw our way out of this? So this kind of paranoia side is, or lack of paranoia is for me, a really interesting one. Something else I'd say is the manager strategy fit. People often ask us like, what does the perfect manager look like? And the answer has to be, well, what's the strategy that they're running? How well does the skill set and background and experience of the manager map onto whatever strategy it is that they're running, but also how well does that character map onto it in the same way as I don't know, imagine if your like long-term buy and hold equity investors were ADHD. So if a guy who's just completely like schizophrenic and bounces around all the time and is just jacked up is telling you that he wants to buy and hold stocks for 10 years, that just wouldn't work. And someone who's extremely kind of like thoughtful, pedantic, slow in their thinking and gets to their conclusions very slowly and holds them very strongly, you wouldn't want them being a trader. And so there's this kind of Depending on the strategy, you're looking for different characteristics in the character of a manager as well as in their background and skill set. One of my pet peeves is the inability to answer a question straight. We talk to a lot of managers. It is my job to talk to as many as I possibly can. I think I've spoken to more than 80% of the managers in the space. It's very, very rare that someone describes something to me that I haven't heard before. And the managers that will not give you a straight answer when you ask them a simple question also tend to think that what they're doing is unique and proprietary. And they're also the guys that will talk down the competition and say, no, 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 like, no one else is doing what we do and they're all idiots and we're wonderful. So those all kind of like fit together. And I think it's bad for a couple of reasons. The first is they get complacent. So they'll spend less time on research because they think their model is durable and it's not. And they think it's great. And when it stops working, they just won't know why. And also because if someone's going to be difficult, you know, we're not asking them to tell us 
their secret sauce and reveal what's proprietary about their model. But if you can't have a five minute conversation about how it all fits together, then you probably don't have much of an edge because if an idiot like me could recreate it, then how much is it really worth? If that's how the conversations are going, then when something goes wrong, you just don't know that this guy's gonna give you a straight answer. And so I tend to avoid those kinds of managers. The other easy one is referencing. We do a lot of referencing typically. And if it's less than gushing, even after you really push and find references that haven't been sent to you, find really independent ones, that's always a good sign. If you can find eight people that just think the world of a particular manager and he doesn't know that they're talking to you, that's usually a good thing. There seems to be a lot more institutional appetite in this space. I know just from the conversations I'm having, more and more people are taking it seriously as a potentially alternative asset class. If someone is new and looking to allocate to this space, what questions should they be asking? I mean, my advice to them would firstly to come to the space with an open mind, which people in finance typically don't seem to do. I think especially in Europe, because it has the word currency in it, the cryptocurrency space is sort of seen as as being within the purview of finance. And if I'm in finance, then I must know. But I think the reality of it is that these aren't trying to be currencies by and large. And it's PhD level tech. And you wouldn't go and pick biotech startups or have strong opinions about different areas of biotech research without having a degree in it. So why do you feel so sure about yourself when it comes to crypto? So I I would say the first thing is just to have an open mind. The second is, I think that there are three ways to allocate to the space that make sense. I think there's a reasonable case to be made for Bitcoin as a digital gold type asset that is private and fixed supply and is a bearer asset. I think that there's a reasonable case to be made for that being part of your portfolio that you may agree or not agree with. No pressure. The second is is to say, okay, well, I feel like there's some promising kind of technology here and I want to bet on that. And I think if you're going to do that to the PhD point, go and find people to do that for you. And by that, I'm really talking about this is tech and early stage tech and it's deeply technical tech. So go and find a venture capital manager that really knows what he's doing and allocate to them. Find someone you can trust and give them your money to go and invest with a truly long-term horizon into this kind of emerging area of technology. And then the third way of thinking about it is really what our focus is, which is I have no view as to whether Bitcoin is good or bad. I have no view as to whether this thing is the next version of the internet or a big fraud, but I can observe factually that this is a market that is inefficient. And I can objectively see this. And therefore, there are ways to trade this and make money on the alpha side. And two of those three things require you to go and, I think, find a manager to go do it, unless you're doing it full time. And if so, I've never found any better advice than Peter Kaufman's. He's a great investor and he has this concept or story about the five aces. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but the- No, that one's new to me. It's great. He's wonderful. And this framework is the best I've ever found for picking managers. The first one is you should look for total integrity with really no caveats to that whatsoever. The second is like an actual deep world-class fluency in whatever strategy it is that you're running. You should be the best at it. And then it's a fair fee structure and uncrowded investment space. And then the final one is a long runway. So like pick a manager that can manage your money for 20, 30 years because finding these guys is hard. And so once you find one, you should be able to kind of hold on to them for a long time. I can't do any better than that for advice. I think it's wonderfully put. We talked a lot about how the space has changed and the challenges and opportunities that has presented over time to operating capital in the crypto landscape. What changes do you see on the horizon coming up? And what opportunities and challenges do you think that that's going to present? So the space has always been changing and it's going to keep changing. So there's not much to be said, I think, in that sense. Novel to be said there. I mean, the exchange wars are just kind of settling down. So each exchange has more or less, the top ones have kind of found their spot and their niche and they're busy kind of developing those. But if you look at the kind of market share between the different exchanges, it's it's really starting to settle down. There's a lot of new product launches. So all exchanges are launching new products. They're broadening out the amounts of pairs that they're quoting on. 
and giving you the ability to trade and the different ways in which you're able to do that. And they all seem to be adding the functionality you would expect in the traditional market. Things like portfolio margin, more robust trading engines, the ability to make more API calls, better collateral movements, et cetera. The option space is pretty new and growing really fast. I mean, it pretty much didn't exist a year ago and it's pretty big now. Then much more options are far more multidimensional than spot or Delta ones, obviously. The shocks from that are really going to start to be felt in the crypto space. I think you're starting to be able to see like the effect of options pins on price and spot, gamma hedging. Options are starting to kind of make their mark and the volumes keep growing. And so that's going to start to look similar to the traditional space. And I think a lot of the questions people are asking themselves on stocks and the impact from options dealers on that. And then you've got, I mean, uh, there's an exchange called FTX, which has just been busy listing or tokenizing like real world assets, like stocks. So when the GameStop saga happened, like a week later, they had listed a basket of Wall Street bets. I think the contract was called Wall Street bets and it was like backed by the top Wall Street bets stocks. And you could just go and trade that as a future on this exchange. I think it was very tongue in cheek and it was great publicity for them. But it's a continuation of the enmeshing and the growing porosity between the traditional finance space and the crypto space. And I think we're in the last bull run. The previous bull run we had in 2017-18, I said, was the last one in which Bitcoin risk would be binary. Like it's either going to work or it's not, and this could go to zero. I think that risk is basically gone at this point. I think from a trading perspective, the kind of market character that's going to be in question this time around is that after this bull run, Bitcoin will no longer be the uncorrelated asset. It's being financialized in this bull run, and it's going to start trading along with everything else. And that's going to be important. And then the final thing, which is just the DeFi space has, so decentralized finance has just gone from like curiosity to mainstream. And the cutting edge of trading research is happening here. I mean, it's completely different. Centralized crypto trading is somewhat similar. I mean, it's basically similar in its foundational aspects to equities or whatever you want. DeFi is just a beast of its own. And the you have completely new virgin territory to figure out how to make alpha in that space. And it's just been fascinating to watch. Well, I can't let the show end like that. The show the show goes on. <laughs> we got to talk a, at least a little bit about DeFi. You can't leave me on that. I'll tell you what, I'll give a teaser on it. It's worth another hour of, of chatting. So the DeFi space is, I think I mentioned this before, like people are basically rebuilding financial infrastructure on these blockchains, predominantly Ethereum. And so you have like decentralized exchanges, which is to say you can call up a contract that sits on Ethereum and say, hey, I want to swap USDT, my stablecoin, for some Ether. And you can send it, you can put an order in the order book and the matching engine actually sits in a smart contract and is matched by a smart contract. So there is no counterparty here. You're trading against other strangers, none of whom had to sign any paperwork or identify themselves in any way. They're just an address on Ethereum that you're trading against. And the entire thing is deterministic. And this deterministic aspect of it is what's so interesting about it. So obviously you can arbitrage between a decentralized exchange and a centralized exchange. And just like there were opportunities or differences between equities exchanges and crypto exchanges in terms of what infrastructure they sit on, whether it's like physical servers in one place or whether it's AWS. In crypto, the matching engines sit on the Ethereum virtual machine, which is like Ethereum's version of the cloud. And the way in which the EVM works is totally different to anything else. Because amongst other things, for state to change in Ethereum, which is to say for like a transaction to happen, you need to mine that into a block. And Ethereum blocks happen every, God, I think it's like every seven seconds on average. And so you have an update basically every seven seconds in which a block of different computations and state changes get computed at the same time. And so the way in which you would think about like posting orders and stale orders and arbitrage trades is just completely different between centralized and decentralized exchanges. But taking that one layer deeper, the dominant form of exchange in the DeFi space is actually automated market makers rather than order books. And with an automated market maker, you basically have a, a liquidity pool where people put assets into a pool and those assets can be traded against each other. So 
you would deposit into a new liquidity pool 50 bucks worth of Ethereum and 50 bucks worth of dollars. And I could go and say, here are some dollars I want to buy some Ethereum. And the more I do that, the more I shift, obviously, the supply, the equal supply in dollar times of Ether and dollars. And so there's kind of this curve where the more I move that pool, the more you disturb the balance between those two assets, the more slippage you're going to incur. So if I want to buy one Ether, my slippage might be 10 bips. But if I want to buy two Ether, it might be a percent. And if I want to buy three Ether, I'm basically draining the Ethereum out of the pool. And so the slippage I incur is exponential. And that incentivizes me, obviously, not to. And on the backside of that, by providing the liquidity, you're actually collecting transaction fees on the other side of it. But what's interesting here is, and this gets really into the weeds, but I'm posting a transaction to Ethereum, and that goes into a public memory pool waiting to be mined. In that public memory pool, anyone else can go and look at that. So if I've identified an arbitrage trade, I'm posting basically an order that writes in code, buy from here and sell over there for a profit. And someone else can pick up on that transaction. And we can get into a gas bidding war where he's going to pay more transaction fees in Ethereum than me so that his transaction gets mined ahead of mine. Because while we're in the same block, that block is mined sequentially. So all of these different state changes and computations are lined up one after another, typically in order of who's paying the highest fees per unit of computation. And so I post into the mempool, and then someone else sees the transaction and goes, Jesus, there's $10 of profit here. I'm going to post with a higher transaction fee than him. And then I would see that and go, I'm being front run. So I'm going to repost my transaction again into the memory pool with an increase. And so we get into this auction and we'll basically auction each other up until the marginal dollar, basically. And what's interesting at that point is that I might have a computationally less expensive way of expressing that trade than the other guy. And if so, I can afford a higher transaction fee per unit of computation, which is your gas. And that means that like, by being able to write a smart contract better or more efficiently than the next guy, I might be able to kind of sweep these trades. And this gets back to the point of this is arbitrage and quote unquote high frequency trading, but it looks absolutely nothing like trading on a crypto exchange or what Jump is doing on equities. There's a bunch of different examples that we can go into, but that's the high level. Well, this might require a whole other hour. As someone who just wrote their first contract on the Ethereum blockchain oh, cool. just two weeks ago, just to, just to mess that's with great. it, understanding that computational intensity and, and coming from a computer science background, I get all that, but actually seeing it come out in a transaction cost was a really fascinating way of thinking about this sort of virtual computer and the cost of doing business. Very fascinating space, probably going to require us to do a little bit of laying the foundation for listeners, but a conversation I would love to revisit with you in the future. Last question for you. I know that you're sort of going through your third lockdown right now. I just saw on the news, it looks like in London, the restrictions are starting to ease up a bit. What are you most looking forward to when you get out of lockdown? Oh, I travel. <laughs> I've never spent this much time in London before. <laughs> so it'd be good to get out. We have terrible weather here and it's uniformly bad over the whole country. I'm very jealous of Americans in that respect. Well, David, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for your time and, and hopefully we can schedule something again in the future. Thank you so much. And if anyone is trading in the crypto space, we would love to chat to you. Please don't hesitate to reach out. If you're enjoying the season, please consider heading over to your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a rating or review and sharing us with friends or on social media. It helps new people find us and helps us grow. Finally, if you'd like to learn more about newfound research, our investment mandates, mutual funds, or associated ETFs, please visit thinknewfound.com. And now welcome back to my ongoing conversation with Harley Bassman. One of the themes that I found has resonated throughout your writing over the years is this idea that there's just a few major risk vectors that we would, at least from a theoretical perspective, expect to be correlated over the medium term. So, hoping you could spend a little time explaining this philosophy and why it's important for investors to be aware of. Thank you. I think it's a very interesting point you brought up, and it's one of my core foundations for investing. 
if you look at the world from 30,000 feet, there's three major inputs to risk, at least in the bond market. Duration, credit, convexity. Duration is when you get your money back. Credit is if you get it back. And convexity is how you get it back. And the interplay between them is what creates how you choose assets to allocate. Now, interestingly enough, if you were a supercomputer blindly pushing money around, you would look at those three risks and you'd say, which one offers the best value? And so if the curve was to flatten and rates went down, you'd say, okay, that's not as valuable as it used to be. Let's look at credit spreads. And then they would tighten as people move from the curve to credit. And as that tightens in, you then move to optionality, convexity, and you see options selling or various other structured notes being created where there's implied options being sold. And thus, all three of these things interplay with each other. And although you can't day trade this, you can't even monthly trade this. There is a very high correlation of the shape of the curve, high yield and investment grade bond spreads, and the level of implied volatility. If you look at this over 20 or 30 years, they go up and down as a wave together. Mm-hmm.